Welcome to the London School of Economics and Political Science, and thank you for being here for a very important policy address as part of the Migration Studies Unit lecture series. Uh, my name is Justin Guest. I co-direct the Migration Studies Unit, and it's a pleasure to have you. In light of concerns about violent extremism, today policymakers are grappling with balancing, on the one hand, the prevention of this extremism, and on the other hand, the promotion of social cohesion. Tonight, I'm delighted to welcome the minister who is tasked with striking this very delicate balance. The Right Honorable Hazel Blair is the Secretary of State for Communities and Local Government, a post she has held for nearly two years now. Before, she has been the Labor Party Chair, and before that, Minister of State for Policing, Security, and Community Safety, under which her portfolio included counterterrorism, crime reduction, and active communities. Earlier in her parliamentary career, she also served as Minister of State for Public Health, and prior to her initial election to Parliament from Salford in 1997, she was Principal Solicitor for Manchester City Council and held an array of other local offices. After her speech, there will be time for questions. However, for now, please join me in giving a very warm welcome to Hazel Blears to the LSE. Well, thank, thank you very much for that um, extremely warm welcome. And uh, it is a great pleasure for me to be here at the London School of Economics, uh, something I discovered, founded in fact by the Fabian Society in the century before last, as a centre for rational analysis and policy evaluation, uh, something that is in great demand and uh, sometimes short supply these days. Uh, but today the LSE enjoys an international reputation for educational excellence. Uh, and I'm delighted to have the chance to explore these very difficult issues uh, in this venue here tonight. Now, this is a difficult conversation. Talking about violent extremism doesn't come easily to any of us. It is laden with potential traps, clouded with emotion, confused by contested terminology, ignorance and prejudice. But George Orwell in Politics and the English Language warned us against using confusion over words and their meanings as the excuse for what he called political quietism. It may be tough, but it is a conversation that we have to have. The attacks in the United States of America on 9-11, the bombings in London on 7-7, the Madrid bombings and the failed attacks on Glasgow Airport at the Giraffe Restaurant in Exeter on the Tiger Tiger nightclub in London, these events are real Many families have lost their loved ones. Many people have sustained terrible injuries or live with traumatic memories. And these episodes of terror are not unconnected or standalone. They're part of a pattern of violence against civilians in many countries by a network of organizations and small groups which share a basic interpretation of the world and are prepared to kill and to die for what they see as their cause. And they will continue. Barack Obama used his inaugural address in February to tell the world, our nation is at war against a far-reaching network of violence and hatred. So what is this far-reaching network of violence and hatred? It is rooted in a shifting mosaic of international groupings with their origins in the struggle of the Mujahideen against the Soviets in Afghanistan, in the refugee camps, and some madrasas on the Afghan-Pakistan border in Algeria's political unrest of the 1980s and 1990s, and in the war in Iraq. Some seek to define this mosaic of organizations and philosophies as Islamism, 
and sometimes political Islam. But here we run into real dangers. There is the obvious danger that we say Islamism, but people hear Islam or Islamic, especially as the word translates poorly into other languages such as Arabic, and even in English, where the two words are distinct, many people lack the political literacy to distinguish between a political ideology, dubbed by some as Islamism, and Islam itself. And there are plenty of people, for example the BNP in this country, or Geert Wilder's outfit in Holland, who would wish to conflate the two in order to stir up race hate. A second trap is that to talk of Islamism suggests that there is a unified single movement. But there is no more a unified Islamism than there is a single socialism, or a single conservatism, or a single liberalism. As with every single political creed, from Marxism to fascism, there are internal factions, theoretical disputes, acrimonious splits, personality clashes, revisionism and evolution of thought and organisation. For example, Al-Qaeda is in conflict with the Muslim Brotherhood over fairly fundamental questions, such as the nature of the state and the duty of the individual to fight the perceived enemies of Islam. A third trap is to assume that all Islamists are terrorists. Some groups specifically oppose violence, but have religious views which are very conservative and can conflict with other values that we share in our society. Hizbut Tahrir, for example, is a party which is overtly anti-democratic. It's against the existence of Israel. It wants an end to the British state and its replacement by a theocracy, but nonetheless falls short of openly advocating violence or terrorism. And to lump, to lump Hizbut Tahrir in with Al-Qaeda is to fail to understand the differences between the two, just as it would be intellectually lazy to lump the BNP with Combat 18 or the Socialist Workers' Party with the Red Army faction. But the question is the extent to which politically extreme groups such as Hizbut Tahrir contribute to an environment which makes violence more acceptable or justifiable, makes individuals more susceptible to committing acts of violence, and whether there is a symbiotic relationship between groups whose hate is expressed in words or whose support for terrorism or suicide bombing is confined to the Middle East but not Britain, and those whose hate is expressed in violent actions. Again, for example, the Muslim Brotherhood is not a terrorist organisation, but it supports terrorist organisations such as Hamas in Gaza. Now, notwithstanding my plea for an enhanced literacy when it comes to discourse about the nature of what we might call political Islamisms in the plural, it is also clear that we can discern some common threads in that far-reaching network of violence and hatred. A belief in the supremacy of the Muslim people, in a divine duty to bring the world under the control of hegemonic Islam, in the establishment of a theocratic caliphate, and in the undemocratic imposition of theocratic law on whole societies. These are the defining and common characteristics of the disparate strands of the ideology here and around the world. And you can't ignore the facts that this ideology is rooted in a twisted reading of Islam. The academics, scholars and imams that I meet to discuss these issues tell me that the message of Islam is one of peace. And the followers of Islam that I meet oppose the single narrative promulgated by Al-Qaeda. They certainly oppose violence. 
and indeed the overwhelming majority are proud of their faith and their nationality. They see no conflict or contradiction between being British and being Muslim, and they're an integral part of the economic, social and cultural life of their neighbourhood and of this country, giving the lie by their very nature to the ideas of division and difference that lie at the heart of the extremist ideology. Research into British mosques that the Charity Commission released earlier this week gave us a further insight. Almost all the mosques that they interviewed educate young people. Four in five raise money to help the poor and vulnerable. Most have women's groups. Many more get involved in sport, health or services for older people. And that is what Islam truly means in practice for the vast majority. It's a personal and spiritual faith matched by a sense of social responsibility, motivating people to do good for their neighbourhood and for their community. But we also had the report this week from the Quilliam Foundation into British mosques that highlights the challenges we face. The majority of imams are still born or educated abroad. Some speak little English, making it harder to forge a connection with young people. And government is very alive to these challenges. That is why, in response to calls from the Muslim community, we are looking to enable more faith leaders to be trained in this country, to improve qualification standards, to help existing faith leaders improve their language, their pastoral skills, so that they can relate to young people living in this country today. But the fact is that violent extremists will try and step in where young people in search of guidance can't get it elsewhere. They will use religious language, religious texts and passages, they'll seek to get a foothold in mosques and madrasas in order to spread their messages, and they will exploit international events, such as the war in Iraq or the conflicts on Israel's borders, to inflame opinion and to reinforce the sense of grievance. Now, when I'm asked, why does the Labour government spend so much money as part of the prevent strand of our contest counter-terrorism strategy on mainstream and moderate Muslim groups, the answer is not because we think Muslims are violent extremists, but instead it is because we know that violent extremists prey upon Muslims, and especially young people, and so Muslim communities are a vital part of the solution. And to ignore that fact, I think, is to blunt or neuter our ability to tackle it. Take the evidence from the Operation Crevice trial, which revealed the truly international nature of the terrorist network and offered some illumination on the way radicalisation can lead to terror. A plot to detonate a massive fertiliser bomb was successfully foiled by the police and the security services and the perpetrators were convicted in court. The ringleader Omar Khayyam, whose grandfather had served in the British Army, was radicalised by preachers of hate such as Omar Bakri, watched propaganda videos which cast Chechnyan rebels as Muslim freedom fighters, and travelled to Pakistan to undergo training with Kashmiri terrorists and to Afghanistan to support the Taliban. He trained with Mohammed Sadiq Khan, who went on to commit mass murder on the 7th of July. Omar Khayyam's radicalisation took place before 9-11 and before the subsequent invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan, which proves that violent extremism is not simply the product of British or American foreign policy in Iraq and Afghanistan. It's far more complex than that. And everyone who has planted bombs in the UK has been on a similar journey of radicalisation. It is not a transmission belt. Radicalisation does not lead automatically to terrorism. But no one would strap explosives to their own bodies in order to kill themselves and other people 
without first being radicalised. And the essence of terrorism is that a tiny number of individuals can wreak a disproportionate level of violence and fatality. To dismiss violent extremism as simply criminal is to fail to conceive properly its political and societal roots. And this leads me to contest the government's counter-terrorism strategy and what is called the prevent strand of it, which is a shared responsibility between my department, the Home Office and the Foreign Office. Prevent is the part of our strategy that goes beyond arrest and surveillance, beyond the work of the police and the security services. Now, I don't for a minute downplay the significance of that security work. A huge amount of hard work has helped foil and forestall planned attacks in this country, but security measures are not the whole solution. Prevent is about stopping people wanting to commit violence in the first place, and Prevent is built on the idea that just as violent extremists seek to attack us all, and the victims of 7-7 were young and old, different races and faiths, straight and gay, we all of us have a role to play in stopping them. And it's not a job for any one group of people or for specialists. It's about the stay-at-home mum, the taxi driver, the dinner lady, the neighbour, the student, all of whose decisions and actions contribute towards making an environment where violent extremism can flourish or falter. We all have a responsibility to have an open and honest debate about these issues and to stand up against hatred and intolerance. And nowhere is this more important than in an institution like the LSE, which has a proud history of passionate debate, inspiring new thinking, and all of you who are students and lecturers clearly have a key role to play in debating these major issues of our time, in challenging prejudice, tackling ignorance, and helping to shape the kind of world that we all want to live in. Now, PREVENT is designed to empower communities so that they can spot when people may be at risk of being groomed by terrorists. They can give support and encouragement to the men and women who do want to stand up for the values of tolerance and respect, and to equip them with the skills and the confidence to take on the ideology promoted by the violent extremists. It's a very difficult thing to do, to take on this ideology, and I feel a real sense of, of mission to give people the skills and the tools and the analysis and the evidence to enable them to do this. I have personally witnessed the passion and commitment that there is out there in our communities. And there's one young woman who's a member of my Muslim Women's Advisory Group. And she told me recently, I am ready to go anywhere, to any audience, at any time, in this country or abroad, and say that I believe suicide bombing is wrong as a mother and as a Muslim. And it took a great deal of courage and bravery for her to say that publicly and to withstand the challenge that inevitably would come. Now, if we can build on that personal bravery and commitment of people, I think that national government has a real responsibility here. National government sets the strategy for how this policy will be shaped and how it will be delivered. And it is part of national government's job to tell the story that undermines the extremist simple narrative of division and difference. By first of all explaining how the United Kingdom's foreign policy protects the safety and rights of Muslims elsewhere in the world, from our calls for a ceasefire and the speedy allocation of aid in Gaza, to our support for Turkey's entry to the European Union, how new legislation is protecting all faith groups from those inciting religious hatred, and how over the past 11 years, investment in everything from housing to health has made a particular difference 
to those communities living in the most deprived areas of this country. But it is also local government working closely with local communities who deliver the PREVENT programme on the ground. Backed up by £45 million of funding from my department over three years, PREVENT is already supporting projects right across the country, such as language classes for imams, leadership training for young men and women, forums which give a legitimate and democratic and safe space to discuss difficult issues. And this means, inevitably, that the government is now engaged in an unprecedented level of dialogue, direct with communities, but also with organisations that represent those communities. And you can see the potential dangers inherent in this approach, and every minister is very well aware of them. It involves engaging with organisations and individuals with whose views we might disagree vehemently, who may have unacceptable attitudes towards women, towards Jews or gay and lesbian people. And as a Labour government anchored in the European social democratic tradition, we place great store in equality, women's rights, anti-racism and those fundamental values. So I believe that there is a need for moral clarity, for a clear dividing line between what we consider acceptable and what we consider beyond the pale. And we are clear that engagement is not the same as endorsement. And I know that our political opponents will seek to make hay with this. They will say that somehow engaging with groups with extremist views shows a lack of proper understanding of them, that we're being hoodwinked, used or exploited by extremists, or that we don't care enough about anti-Semitism, sexism or homophobia. And this is at the core of the argument of, for example, Melanie Phillips. But if we leave the field clear to extremists without any engagement at all, we embolden them and we undermine our own objectives. And if we genuinely want to change minds, then we will never make progress merely by talking to people who already agree with us. We must be prepared to challenge and be challenged in return. What is needed is a framework for engagement based on clear principles. The objectives of an engagement strategy are twofold. There can be no place at the table for groups involved in terrorist activity. So, for example, the government will not debate or discuss with overtly terrorist organisations. If offered the chance for a public debate with a representative of Al-Qaeda via a satellite link-up, no minister would accept. You cannot win political arguments with groups who tell lies as part of their strategy, who change the goalposts, who spread misinformation and seek to undermine the very process of debate. And agreeing to meet and engage in discussion with such groups would lend a veneer of legitimacy that they have done nothing to warrant. Indeed, to consider Al-Qaeda as in any way the legitimate representative of public opinion, Muslim or non-Muslim, would be a huge insult to Muslims anywhere, and particularly those who have suffered themselves from Al-Qaeda violence. But meanwhile, if offered a public platform with a group dedicated to fighting violent extremism, which is also matching that commitment with practical action, then there is an argument for the government taking part or funding specific projects even if government does not share all of the social views of that group. This is a finely balanced judgment, as you said in the introduction, about striking the correct balance is a very difficult area to be involved with, but absolutely vital. At the other end of the spectrum, again, the decision is easier. Where we're meeting, talking to and funding groups who stand up to violent extremism, who also celebrate the core values that unite our society, such as respect for others, then that is absolutely um, 
vital for us to do because it strengthens those groups. It helps embolden the moderate voices that are out there. It gives encouragement to the men and women who question harmful ideology. And put simply, effective engagement can help encourage or reinforce a change in opinion and behaviour. Defining this approach is not, however, as straightforward as ticking off a few names on a list. There is no single Muslim community in the United Kingdom. There are many Muslim communities, different religious traditions, different geographic roots. About 50% of the UK's Muslims are women, 50% are under 25. And in the last few years, government has made a conscious effort to get better at listening to a much wider range of voices in our Muslim communities. And that's perhaps best exemplified by the formation of the Muslim Women's Group and the Young Muslim Advisory Group. And in practice, the government, both nationally and in local government, is also contending with a wide range of groups who cover a broad spectrum of attitudes towards violent extremism. Indeed, you will often find a range of attitudes inside the groups themselves. And just as we deal with a spectrum of groups, we need a spectrum of engagement, carefully calibrated to deal with individual circumstances, ranging from isolation and rejection, through discussion, through challenge and debate, to working with and funding organisations who want to be part of the solution. With groups which call for or support terrorist acts, there is no room whatsoever for debate, only vociferous opposition. With groups which do not call for terrorism, but ha which have an equivocal attitude on core values such as democracy, freedom of speech, or respect towards women, there is some scope for limited engagement, and an important part of any engagement will be to challenge those views that the government considers to be unacceptable. With other groups or coalitions, which on the whole accept core values and reject extremism, but which have some internal dissent about these principles, there is scope for broader debate in public, especially where this would encourage men and women standing up for core values inside those organisations and help them carry the day in the argument that will be raging inside those groups. And with those groups who are taking a genuine lead, ministers can make visits, share platforms, debate in public, and the stronger the group's example, the stronger the case for ministerial involvement at a high level all the way up to the Prime Minister. These principles hold for engagement at a local as well as at a national level. The Prevent Delivery Strategy, published in June 2008, gave clear advice to local authorities and their partners on the factors that they should take into account when deciding which organisations to engage with and how to do it. We have to have a clear analysis of the methodology of violent extremist groups. And one aspect of this clarity is an understanding that violent extremists, as well as non-violent extremists, operate in a clandestine way. They sometimes conceal their true aims and objects. They use labyrinthine channels of fundraising. For example, five organisers of the Holy Land Foundation, which was a Dallas-based charity, were convicted in American courts last November for channeling over $12 million to Hamas. They use front organisations with innocuous sounding names. And this is a political tactic that is well understood. It has precedence from across the political spectrum. For example, the Revolutionary Socialist League, some of you may remember, established a front called Militant, which in turn, in turn established the Youth Trade Union Rights Campaign and the All Britain Anti-Poll Tax Union. Amongst others, the, um, the British National Party has a, a front trade union known as Solidarity. The Soviet Communist Party established the World Peace Council, and so on. 
And in the United States, the Global Relief Foundation was closed down in 2001 for raising funds for Al-Qaeda, and the Benevolence International Foundation has been banned by the United Nations for being a front for Al-Qaeda. And those extremist groups which engage in democracy, for example, by standing candidates in elections, are often doing so as a political tactic. So we must be vigilant at all times because our opponents will use a variety of tactics to stay one step ahead and some groups will seek to hoodwink mainstream politicians into their tacit support. For example, by invitations to seminars and conferences. The technique was known to Lenin who talked about useful idiots. And the left in particular must be vigilant. The liberal left is historically concerned for the underdog, for oppressed peoples, for taking a stand against racism and imperialism. It is part of our political DNA. The problem is that these valid concerns can be mutated into support for causes and organisations which are fiercely anti-liberal and populated by people whose hearts are filled with misogyny, with homophobia and with a hatred of Jewish people. It leads to British Democrats who are sickened by the sight of the suffering of the Palestinian people allying themselves with people who advocate the violent destruction of an entire nation state, a member of the United Nations, who believe that Jews were behind 9-11 and fled the Twin Towers before the attacks, and who believe there is a global conspiracy guiding the world's economy. Strange bedfellows indeed. Liberals' pathological fear of being branded racist or Islamophobic can lead to ideological contortions, condoning or even forming alliances with groups which are socially conservative homophobic, anti-Semitic, and violent towards women. There are some who say that it is a form of racism or imperialism to disagree with what they see as cultural attitudes and practices. I say the values that put all humans on an equal footing with equal rights for all are not Western values, they are human values. Therefore, it is right that we stand up against violence towards women, for example, whether it's sanctioned or encouraged by religious and cultural leaders or not. There is a line when respect for other cultures is crossed and a universal morality should kick in. Let me put it another way. This country is proud of its tradition of fair play and good manners, welcoming of diversity, tolerant of others. This is a great strength of our country. But the pendulum has swung too far. The quality of debate about religion in contemporary life and by religion I mean all faiths, is being sapped by a creeping oversensitivity. Three quarters of the UK population describe ourselves as belonging to one of the major world religions. A survey for the BBC this week found that nearly more, th more than three in five people believe that national laws should be influenced by traditional religious values, not dominated, but influenced, and that faith should have a bigger role in the public sphere. Yet there is an astonishing squeamishness about this subject. It seems that every week we hear a new story. The nurse suspended because she offered to pray for a patient, or the school banning Christmas decorations, about people getting into a panic because someone somewhere might be offended. And worse, at times, leaders have sometimes been reluctant to challenge absolutely unacceptable behaviour, forced marriage, female genital mutilation, or homophobia, because they are so concerned about upsetting people's cultural sensitivities. This flies in the face of another of our very strong traditions, open debate, rational inquiry, and plain old common sense. We would do well to be a little less anxious and a little bit more robust. 
And just as we're confident about speaking up against the race hatred of the BNP, we should be confident about condemning the intolerance of Christian extremists such as Fred Phelps. And we should be confident about saying no to unacceptable practices that have their roots in different cultural traditions. Take female genital mutilation, a wholly medically unnecessary procedure performed on young girls which creates the danger of serious infection or death. It's practiced throughout Africa, including Senegal, Tanzania, Egypt, Ethiopia and Somalia and the Middle East, including Yemen, Bahrain, Oman, Saudi Arabia and the UAE. In this country, it's been illegal since 1985. But in 2003, Labour passed a new law, making it illegal to travel abroad with a girl for the purposes of undergoing female genital mutilation with a maximum sentence of 14 years. And the evidence is that this has deterred people from doing so. Some believe that female genital mutilation is part of being a Muslim, yet the Quran says nothing about the practice, and many Muslims believe and argue that it is in fact un-Islamic. So my point is that it is right for the UK government to take a stand on this issue, and right that we backed our stance with legislation. There may be those who consider it cultural imperialism for us to ban female genital mutilation because it imposes our cultural values on other people. In fact, it is about protecting the rights of young girls to grow up without the trauma and injury forced upon them by people with reactionary and ill-informed views about female sexuality. It might be that this is at the extreme end of the argument. But what about those who argue that suicide bombing a civilian bus or bar is a justifiable act of war as long as it takes place in Afghanistan, Iraq or Israel? Is suicide bombing acceptable in Baghdad but not in Birmingham? I would argue again that such cultural relativism is abhorrent because it paves the way to extremist political positions which condone the murder of women and children. To conclude, this strain of violent extremism is a relatively new phenomenon. As our understanding of it continues to grow more sophisticated, we will continue to adapt and update our approach. But that approach must always be rooted in our sense of what is right and what is wrong. And if we are to change minds and win this debate, it will not be by restricting our, engage our engagement to a select few, but through bringing in new voices. And it won't be by concealing what we believe in but through making our arguments confidently. And it won't be by acquiescing with those with whom we disagree, but through being robust in our challenge to them. Thank you very much for listening, and I welcome your questions. Thank you very much for that very important policy address. Um, we will take some questions, uh, and uh, if the minister is happy to answer them, we'll probably take them in clusters. And so we have some roving microphones around the room. Please raise your hand if you'd like to be chosen. We have uh, two gentlemen in the back sitting next to each other. We'll do two for the price of one that way. Saves her less walking. Yes, please, please do state who you are and where you're from before you ask your question. And please make sure your question is in the form of a question. Uh, good evening. Uh, my name is Zine Khan Malik. I'm from Los Angeles, uh, California. And uh, my question is, uh, throughout your speech, you had mentioned that engagement is not endorsement and that we should be seeking to engage with a broad scope of people. Uh, however, you also, also mentioned that it's important not to engage with known groups, groups known to support violence. 
and saying that um, engagement, limited scope for engagement exists with groups who accept some of the core values, but maybe not all. However, my question is, uh, with this policy, aren't you essentially ignoring the very people that we should be engaging with? The groups that uh, uh, do not support violence and terror, uh, aren't they most likely the ones who are already maybe partially integrated and don't support this type of extremism? And isn't the, is the extremists who do support violence that we really should be engaging with? So are we preaching to the converted? Good. Next. Uh, thank you. Uh, my name's John Hume, and I'd like to ask um, what may at first sight appear to be a slightly naive question. In what is uh, an open society and a largely tolerant society, why is it that just a small core of people appear to be prepared to use violence in order to achieve their ends, quite oblivious to what they do to their own fellow human beings? Thank you. All right, what motivates people? Is, does everyone hear the microphones pretty well? Okay, next question we have from the far left, please. Hi, uh, Duncan Reed. Uh, my question is similar to the first one. Uh, Hazel has Can stated that under no circumstances will the government in, engage in debate with terrorist organizations. How is that reconciled with the policy under Tony Blair's government, where that's precisely what the government did in Northern Ireland to bring uh, a peace solution? All right, thank you. We have one question over here on the far right, and this will be the last one for this set, and then we'll come around for another. Oh, over here, please. Thanks. I'm sorry to interfere. It's Simon Israel from Channel 4 News. You talked of being hoodwinked. Does the minister feel that Britain has been hoodwinked by the United States on issues to do with torture and rendition? All right, we will leave it at there. You've already challenged pretty okay. good LSE um, tradition. That's, that, that, that's fine. Um, all of these questions, each one of them, we could probably spend you know, the next half an hour on because these are really complex and dense issues um, for all of us. Um, in terms of are we preaching to the converted and you know, should we just leave them to one side and concentrate on the people that we, we want to challenge, um, that, that's a perfectly legitimate question to pose to us. Um, my view is that if, if we can support the moderate voices that are out there and grow their own capacity then we will, I hope, get to a position where the, um, the decent majority of moderate Muslims will feel stronger and stronger and stronger to be able to stand up themselves with other people in their communities, not just as a Muslim community, but with other people, and to say to extremists, we want no part of your argument, you do not represent our values, and we do not want you particularly uh, to be trying to draw our young people into your web uh, and to peddle the, the, the pernicious arguments that you've got. Now, I, I think we still need to do that work, uh, because I still think that lots of people in the Muslim community their confidence is still quite fragile um, and their ability to be able to participate in public life um, is not as great as for other communities um, and therefore much of the work that I'm engaged with is building leadership capacity, um, building confidence so that they themselves can rebut the arguments uh, that, that come at them, whether they're on the internet, whether they're in their own communities. So I think that's an important piece of work to do in and of itself. Um, and I've learned in the last couple of years that actually the number of women, the number of young people, 
people whose voices were never heard by government on this agenda because they never figured in the organisations that government engaged with. Um, and therefore, we've lost out on a huge amount uh, of knowledge and, and expertise from those groups in particular. And that's where I put a lot of my energy and will continue to do so. Um, in terms of the, the, the question also um, from, from Duncan, which draws into this, you know, if we don't engage with the terrorists, what chance have we ever got of getting to a resolution? I would say that there are some significant differences between this threat that we're facing um, and, in fact, the terrorism from Northern Ireland. Um, the terrorism from Northern Ireland um, had a very clear um, political cause. It had uh, objectives it wanted to reach. It had a negotiating strategy that it wanted to implement. Um, the, the threat from um, the, 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 and I will say the Islamist um, issues that we've got here, um, actually it's not a negotiable strategy. Um, you don't have a set of demands that could be accommodated, negotiated, agreed um, if you sat around a table and tried to get there um, because actually that demand is for a, a global um, restoration of a caliphate, a theocratic state, the imposition of Sharia law, all of those things are not part of, of a territorial claim that you can sit down and negotiate around. And I think that is a key, key difference in relation to this threat that we face and indeed past um, terrorist organisations uh, and, and the process that's been made there. Um, and I think that we do need to be very clear about that distinction. Um, in terms, John, uh, what motivates people to take these steps? Um, that there is quite a bit of research available now, uh, but not enough. And what we're finding is that there is not one simple, single um, route to, to terrorism from radicalization. As, as I said, not everybody who is radicalized will end up as a terrorist, um, but everybody who's a terrorist has been down a radicalization path. Um, some of the issues I think are quite interesting. Some of them are about identity. They are about um, a confusion particularly amongst second and third generation um, young men about what their identity is in, in our society. Um, some of it is about social dislocation, um, things that happen when you are at a particularly vulnerable time in your life. Um, for example, if it's the first time that you've left home and you come to university, at that point you come away from the, the kind of family home that you know and the familiar things, you're put into a strange environment, lots of students will experience this, whatever background they're from, and at that point people are very vulnerable um, to people who, who've got a very strong ideology, who draw you into a group, who give you a sense of identity and status uh, and a sense of belonging, and if that group happens to be the one that's going to take you down a particular path, that can happen. Um, some of the routes through for some young people have been where their parents have broken up, where their families have broken up, and they've lost a particularly important figure in their own family life. Um, so a lot of this is emotional. And if you look at um, Mohammed Sadiq Khan, um, quite a lot of that was about um, forced marriage, that they wanted the right to, to marry and the person that they fell in love with, rather than to, to be forced into a, an arranged marriage. Um, and the power of love is enormous. Um, so I don't think we have one simple route through. But the more we find out, then the more we're building our research base. And at that point, I think we then see, are there particularly vulnerable points at which we can target our policy interventions and our support to try and ensure that this doesn't happen? Uh, but I don't profess that we know all about it yet. The only other thing I would say is that we have a piece of work going on with Cambridge University now, uh, which is arm's length. It's not genuinely not um, about the government here. But it's how do we contextualize Islam in a modern 21st century industrialized democracy where Muslims are in a minority, not in a majority. And that piece of work, I think, is going to be incredibly important in enlightening us about some of this journey and some of the background to it. Oh, and Simon. Um, 
we've been hoodwinked by the USA. Um, I, I will give you, obviously, the, the government's position in relation to the torture allegations, and you'll know that there's an investigation um, that, and I say this seriously, that you know we do not condone um, torture and um, have a very, very strong and, um, stance on all of that. Um, and, and I can tell you no more than that this evening um, in relation to the specific allegations that have been made uh, in, 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 in these terms. Um, have we been hoodwinked? Um, I suppose people like yourself and journalists and commentators um, will take a view um, on that. Without um, the facts of any investigation, um, then I would not want to be in a position here um, to be speculating in terms of that language, which is slightly um, emotive, I would say. Um, and what I don't want to do is to underplay the importance of the issues that are currently being discussed because they are very, very important. And if we're going to have a system whereby we want to protect our core and shared values, then those values, um, we have to not just say that they're important, we also have to live with them and abide by them as well. All right, I'll take another set. Is three Three's four? better than four. Three's better than four. All right. Because <laughs> um, they're complicated. Right. So we have a young lady in the back in the gray sweater. Hi. I just wanted to ask if there was any kind of evaluation program of the PREVENT program going on, and if so, if I mean, what kind it was taking, what, what form it was taking, sorry. All right, where there's an evaluation of the PREVENT program. Very good. There's a gentleman in a blue tie in the far back. Thank you very much. Just very short. Ziad Samas, Islam Channel News. Um, three short points. Uh, the recent demonstrations that took place in London um, at the time of the Gaza crisis, there must have been over 50,000 people, or whatever the calculated figures were, that stood there and unanimous, unanimously chanted, and this is from all faiths and no faith, we are all Hamas. Does that not indicate um, a certain necessity to speak to an organization such as Hamas, which you pointed out a few times in this document, is some, uh, an organization you would not previous, uh, previously have spoken to? Secondly, um, with regards to um, homophobia, um, homophobia is um, something in Islam which is not acceptable within the religion. Um, do you therefore risk marginalizing the majority of mainstream Muslims who hold to their faith? And do you differentiate between those that believe that, yet refuse to actually act upon it and seek to implement some kind of action against homosexuality, yet can live in peace with others? Um, and I had a third part of the question, which was, how, how does this speech that you've given today relate to the Contest 2 document that was leaked recently, which seems to marginalize most mainstream Muslim beliefs and actually, in fact, make the noose tighter around um, the neck of opening dialogue with Muslims. Thank you very much. Cheers. All right, just to clarify, he said that, uh, sorry, sir, you said that um, homophobia is not condoned by Islam. You mean homosexuality? Okay. Okay. All right, thank you very much. Excellent. There's a young lady in the front here as well. That'll be the last one. We'll come around. You did say LSE is famous for debate. Yeah. Hi, I'm Zainab Lula. Um, is it not possible to interact with Hamas as they are actually democratically elected representatives? Right. Uh, eval evaluation of prevent. Um, yeah, it's relatively early days, but we're a bit further on 
um, than, than at the very beginning. The first year that we, we started doing this kind of work, um, we called a Pathfinder year, and that's absolutely what it was, because nobody had really done this work before. Um, so we did a whole range of different things. I think we had 200 projects in 70 different local authorities up and down the country. Um, we did build in evaluation to each of those programs so that we could get a better sense of what worked, what didn't work, uh, and some things did and some things didn't. Um, and then what we tried to do is develop an evidence base. Um, it would be wrong to tell you that you know, I've got a you know, thoroughly, totally, well-researched, completely comprehensive evidence base because it's new work and it's developing. Um, but each of those programs have been evaluated. Um, now we're, we're moving into mainstream funding for the whole programs and the local authorities have got three-year indications of the funds that they will get so they're in a position to plan and they can do longer-term programs um, that, again, will we'll, we'll all be evaluated. Um, but what I think we need to move to now is where we know things work and it's best practice to spread that best practice rather than simply let a thousand flowers bloom and, and, and carry on in that way. We need to be tighter. Um, and we're doing the usual local government things. We've got a portal. We've got a network of mentors. Um, the IDEA organisation, which is comes from local government itself, send people around the country. I have a local delivery advisory group, which is made up of councillors, um, of officers, of police um, people, of community representatives who are about local delivery. So all of that is a very rigorous program. Um, I think one of the difficulties is that if you're dealing with a conventional government area, like cutting um, NHS waiting lists, you know your policy interventions, you can have very accurate measurements as to when you get down to you know, um, a two-week waiting list for your, your cancer scan. Um, in this area, you're, you're dealing with human behaviour, you're dealing with attitudes, and you're dealing with um, cultural and social issues, much more difficult to measure. We have a public service agreement target, um, as we have for everything, um, and one of the measurements is um, how far communities feel able um, to stand up and um, condemn violent extremism and how resilient they are and we're seeking again to populate that um, with proper um, measurement through surveys and through evaluation. So there is a rigour in this programme. Um, I can't justify to the public spending £80 million in total over the next three years without some measure of is it working, is it making a difference out there. Um, and you know, sometimes people shy away from some of the terminology we use on this agenda um, about extremism and say, can't we just talk about supporting the community? And, and I have to say to people, well, it's very difficult to justify public money just on supporting one particular community unless there is real evidence that it's shifting attitudes out there. So uh, we're trying to be as rigorous as we can be. Um, the um, chat from the Islam Channel. Um, the fact that 50,000 people um, might have been shouting, uh, we are all Hamas, um, doesn't make me, as a government minister, uh, suddenly decide to change um, my policy on um, you know, what I think is an appropriate organisation for our government to negotiate with. Um, you know, we are all aware of demonstrations, we're aware of the strength of feeling, um, and the demonstrations about Gaza were cross-faith, they were cross-community, um, and um, I think that did demonstrate um, how deeply um, people were appalled at, at what they saw happening um, on, on the streets of Gaza. Uh, and there's a recognition of that, that doesn't make me want to make the automatic leap uh, that because the people who shout the loudest um, need to, to, to change the, the situation. If we did that, I don't think we'd be in a terribly good place. Uh, in terms of homosexuality, um, you know, I don't think 
we use the criminal justice system to say, you're not allowed to think this. Um, I don't want to live in a society um, where you know, we have the thought police and you're not allowed to have certain views and opinions, however much I uh, dislike them and however much I find it abhorrent. Um, but I'm absolutely determined um, that if people then go out and publicly campaign for discrimination against people on the grounds of their homosexuality or to incite hatred against people on the grounds of their homosexuality, then in this country that is not acceptable. Um, and I think we should stand up very loudly and very clearly and say it. Um, that doesn't mean that you prosecute people for it. But you have got to be able to have the debate. That's how you change minds and attitudes. And the other thing I would say to you is that very often people find it a lot easier to hate people, whether on sexuality grounds or race or anything else, if they've never met people and never mixed with them. And all our research on integration tells us exactly that. The places where people feel the most racist is often when they don't know anybody from another racial background, where it's a predominantly white community and they've never met anybody. And it's, you know, I think it's the same with some of these other issues. If you meet someone and you understand their life and you understand that they're different, um, but that they have many things in common with you, you start to break down those attitudes. Much easier to cleave to your prejudice when you're isolated uh, and, and you don't mix with people from different backgrounds. So, you know, um, I, I won't back off from this uh, and say that in our society I think it's wrong, but we should still continue to have uh, the argument. And I don't see why that should alienate people uh, in this country. Um, in terms of Contest 2, um, then uh, Contest 2 has not been published. Um, and no doubt uh, people will have their comments to make when it is published rather than on um, a so-called leak of the document. I can tell you there is no intention um, to put a noose around anybody's neck, let alone, in your words, to tighten the noose. Um, and I genuinely think that kind of language um, leads to a reinforcement of a kind of victim mentality, um, which is what we're trying to get over. And if you talk to the women and the young people um, who are increasingly part of dialogue on this agenda, you'll find that they're not victims um, and they're not um, people who feel oppressed. They are challenging, feisty, confident people um, and there's absolutely no intention in what we do to get ourselves to that position. Um, and the third question, I've just got democracies down here. Oh, right, yeah, sorry. It's because I couldn't see you terribly. The right. question was, is it not possible to interact with Hamas? Yeah. Um, well, you know, if, if you've got, um, and I, you know, I, I take the point that we could argue about um, people have got a, a mandate uh, in those terms, but if you've got an organisation uh, that is committing um, terrorist um, violence uh, against others, then I don't think that we should be in a position um, of negotiating uh, with, with, with those individuals. Um, and you know, when, when you get to a position where people will renounce their violence, where they will accept uh, the right of the State of Israel to exist, uh, then I think you can have a dialogue. Um, when you have an organisation that doesn't accept the right of um, a United Nations nation um, to exist um, in, in the country, then I think the, the basis for negotiation or even engagement is very little indeed. All right, thank you. Next, uh, in the front here on the right side, my right. Glasses, please, yeah. Thank you, Denise Kostovich of LSE. Um, you described uh, the threat of violent extremism very much in global terms, 
and uh, the response through the program that you described to us is very much framed in local and national terms. Uh, and I wonder whether there is a possible global response or internationally coordinated one, but I'm not really interested in the security aspect and uh, exchange of information. In other words, if you are pioneering a policy which is social, etc., whether there isn't another level where you should be also looking at. Thank you. Uh, there's a woman just to your left. Hi, I'm Julie from New York, and I was just wondering your department's reaction to a report published last week by the Anissa Society um, called the Muslim Response to the Prevent Strand of this counterterrorism strategy, because it basically is it's very critical and it argues that um, the Prevent Strand focuses on treating Muslims as potential terrorists instead of larger social factors, such as unemployment and low levels of education um, and other socioeconomic factors. All right, thank you. And the gentleman right in front of her also has a question. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Minister. Um, well, I'm very encouraged by some of the things you said. Uh, however, uh, you, you have left out a large number of very Can you give us your name and organization? Well, I'm from the National Secular Society. Uh, so I have a particular interest in, in what you had to say. Uh, you didn't mention, for example, that, uh, uh, well, you said, you said amongst other things, that liberals have an irrational fear, a pathological fear of being called racist. But actually you're feeding that very process by deliberately conflating racial hatred with religious hatred. It's perfectly rational to critique and even hate a religion without necessarily hating the believer. And that was exactly the whole point of the Religious and Racial Hatred Act. It was there to protect the believer, not the can, belief. Can you maybe thankfully, put that, sir, Thankfully, you, sir, you were defeated. Can, sir, sure. can you please put that in the form of a question? Well, the question is, why haven't you actually done anything about the, the police action, about the dispatches program, which, which uh, highlighted uh, hate, hate speech at a mosque in Birmingham? In fact, the police tried to prosecute the program makers of dispatches. Uh, you haven't said anything about that. You haven't said about the fact that there's not been a single prosecution for female genital mutilation since 1985 or since the 2003 Act, and so on and so forth. And you're also not actually uh, uh, telling us why it is. Well, you, t you talked about conflation. You, why it is that there's been no prescription of any particular person as there has been for members of the BMP. Uh, you haven't told us All why. Right, sir, sir. I Okay. Could you also there's tell us why Geert Wilders was she... actually not allowed to speak here, even though he's a democratically elected MP? All right. There are many things you have not spoken about. Right. All right. We'll leave it at those three. Okay. Um, Denise, um, I, I, I think your point's very, very well made. Um, I, I said before in answer to the lady at the back that this is a relatively new field of work. Um, but I, I think it's fair to say that in this country uh, we are doing some things which are in advance of things that are happening in particularly in other European countries. Um, a couple of months ago, myself and the Home Secretary um, had a roundtable meeting with our um, colleagues from um, Sweden, um, Netherlands, Spain, France, um, really just to share experience. Um, it, was, it was quite interesting because a majority of the ministers were actually women, um, so that was a change. Um, and it was a, a, a very um, thoughtful, reflective discussion. And um, I think people do feel that here in this country, 
particularly around the, um, the theology part of what we're doing, that is very, very new. The Cambridge Project, the um, contextualising Islam in a modern world, um, the work around imam development, the work around trying to get standards in mosques, all of this is quite pioneering. Um, and other countries are very interested in what we're doing. Equally, um, over in the Netherlands, they have a centre of excellence for local government, and we've recently been over there to look at what they do to see if there's things that we can learn. Um, and I think there is scope um, as we all develop our individual approaches to see is there something that we can do, particularly at a European level, um, the things that unite us. Equally, we've had visits from uh, groups from America, um, and from Australia and Canada, um, again, to share that experience. This is, this is new business for most of us, and we're finding our way. Um, but I think a sense of, of um, taking it beyond simply a nation-state response is, is quite important. But I think in doing that, you would have to recognize that different states have got very, very different social systems. Um, I took a group of Muslim people out to France a couple of years ago, um, and they were quite taken aback um, by some of the um, kind of attitudes um, in a very, very um, you know, secular kind of way um, to, to the, the, the Muslim, not just the Muslim religion, but to religion in general um, out in France. So th there's differences and similarities, but I think we could probably do some good work together. Um, Julie, um, I haven't seen this particular report. Um, I will make it a point of, of doing so um, straight away. Um, this, this is a familiar um, critique of the, the Prevent programme, uh, that it singles people out, it stigmatises them, and really only deals with the Muslim community on the basis of the um, terrorist threat. And I do understand why people are um, uncomfortable about that. Um, what I would say to you, though, is that we have to go beyond unemployment, educational attainment, um, and deprivation, because the terrorist threat that we face may well be fed by some of that grievance, and, and that's one of the strands of our, our counterterrorism strategy, but it's not the sole thing, and therefore that's why it's important that some of the theological work is done, some of the work with mosques, um, all of that. Now, I try and get to a position where it isn't simply singling people out, and it certainly isn't about saying all Muslims are terrorists, but it is about saying we've got a problem in this country where the threat comes from a particular place. What can we do to increase the resilience of those local communities uh, to, to withstand the messages from the extremists themselves? And, and I just think you've got to be honest about that. Um, everybody that I visit in local communities is really comfortable in doing community cohesion because it's a really nice thing to do. It's lovely to bring people together and to mix together and to share um, ideas. It's really hard to have this conversation it's not a pleasant conversation, but if you don't do it, you don't get to the heart of the problem that you're trying to tackle. Now, maybe we could use different language, maybe we can you know, deal with it in a different way, but you can't get away from the essence of the problem, um, which means recognising it and then dealing with it. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't remember your name. Uh, I'm sure I will. Um, in terms of the um, religious hatred bill, I know um, all the arguments that went on at the time, and there was a vociferous lobby, not only should you be able to criticize religion, you should also be able to make jokes. And if you remember at the time, we had um, delegations of stand-up comedians um, lobbying parliament about this legislation. It was hugely controversial, because again, you're trying to legislate about behavior. And whenever you legislate about behavior, you end up in um, a, a difficult dialogue with people. Um, 
I can only assure you that all of our attempts are not about um, closing down debate. They are genuinely to try and protect people from other people inciting violence and hatred against them. Um, if we don't get the absolute nuance, you know, 100% right in some cases, um, then I'm sorry about that. But the legislation that we put in place genuinely um, isn't there. Um, to, to, to close down debate. It is genuinely there uh, to protect people. As you say, there's a lot of things I didn't talk about. Um, I'm not in a position to comment on police action um, in, in that particular case that you've mentioned. The no prosecutions for female genital mutilation, uh, I am aware of, and you know, I'm told that it's deterred people from going out there. Very difficult to prove a negative uh, in those terms, and you know, um, maybe it's a good thing there's no prosecutions, but I, I take your point on is that law being taken seriously enough um, in terms of making sure that, that, that it is enacted. Um, and the prescription point is often raised with me about Hisbutteria. Um, why isn't Hisbutteria a prescribed organisation in this country? And that's because the Terrorism Act says that to be prescribed, you have to be concerned in terrorism. Um, and that's quite a narrow definition. And I think in this country, that shows yet again that we haven't sought to have a huge wide net to draw everybody in, but we've got a fairly limited and defined definition. Um, if you fall into that definition, then we'll take action. If you don't, we're not about simply smearing everybody and drawing them in. And we do keep his but under very, very close review. And if they were to be in that definition, then we would take that action. All right, next round, please. Um, on the far right, please. Thank you, uh, Justin, and welcome, Hazel. Thank you for the speech. Majid Nawaz, director of the Quilliam Foundation. I have a question. Uh, I'm not sure if you've heard, but off the back of the government's decision that I'm sure you're aware we opposed on, on not allowing Wilders into this country due to cohesion grounds, um, and the line we took was that because he didn't directly advocate violence, uh, we would have loved to debate him on his offensive film, but nevertheless, he was banned. But uh, Musawi is due into this country now in March. Um, that's the spokesperson for Hezbollah, Hezbollah in Lebanon. And I'm wondering if the government, off the back of its decision with Gert Wilders, is going to allow him entry or not to allow him entry, and what the criteria will be to, to make that decision. Because unlike Gert Wilders, uh, there's an organization that does engage in violence. So it opens up a whole host of complicated matters. And I'd appreciate your response. And again, thank you for your speech. All right, thank you. We'll go to the far left. I want to make sure we get the fringes. Not ideologically, just physically. Um, hi, my name is Levent Nitra. I'm a student here at DLSC. Uh, you mentioned a few programs and how they founded and how they were developed um, in order to tackle this issue. I'd like to ask a question about one particular one, and that's that so-called Muslim Roadshow that was started in 2005. Um, now, four years later, I'd like to ask about certain results, whether positive or negative, or certain experiences, whether or not you think it reached out to the right group of people, whether or not you think the right people were selected to give lectures throughout the program, and so on. Thanks. And finally, we have a question from the balcony. Is there a microphone up there? Oh, brilliant. Eileen Barker, LSE and Inform. Um, are you working on de-radicalization, and could you talk about that a bit? All right, thank you. We're going to leave it there, and we'll have another cluster. We still have some time. Okay. Um, the grounds on which decisions are made, um, as you'll know, Majid, are basically, is this person's presence 
conducive to um, good and harmonious community relations. So there's, there's some pretty clear criteria about how we make decisions about who should come to this country and who should not come to this country. Um, you'll know that um, I'm, I'm not even sure if an application's yet been made. Uh, there is an invitation uh, to Masawi, I think, to do a lecture uh, at SOAS um, in March. I, I, am, I am not aware that an application has been made by him to come to this country as yet. Uh, if and when an application is made, then it will be examined in accordance with the criteria um, and they will be applied in the um, same way as they're applied to anyone else um, who makes an application. Um, and I'm sorry if that's a politician's answer to you at this stage, but that is the uh, answer my, I must give. But I do hear um, what, what you're saying in relation to that application. Um, the uh, roadshow that, that took place was called the Radical Middle Way, um, I think, and in fact it's still ongoing. Um, and it was a whole series of roadshows that actually is probably the biggest programme in terms of engaging people. And I think it's engaged upwards of um, 80,000 people in the various um, events that have taken place. The whole idea was that we, after 7-7, um, we realised that there needed to be spaces in which people could um, hear thoughts, ideas, um, some of it would be controversial, maybe some of it would be a bit provocative, um, but if we simply had roadshows that had boring, anodyne, um, you know, people who all agreed with a particular line, I can't imagine they would have reached 80,000 people and they would have probably have had an audience of about half a dozen. So it's, it's a careful judgement about the people who are giving the lectures, the people who are giving the speeches, um, you've got to be engaging enough to get people to take part. But obviously, again, as I was saying earlier on, you do not want people who are promulgating a line which is in direct contradiction to the values that we're trying to uphold and share. So it's, it, it is a matter of striking that balance. Um, there's been an evaluation of that programme. Um, it appears to have been very successful in engaging people. But again, um, the way in which we'll measure it is when we get some of these hard measures about are people's attitudes changing, which direction are they moving in, do more people feel empowered um, to stand up and tackle violent extremism, uh, or are we moving in the other direction? And that will be an ongoing measurement issue. Um, I think that the roadshows have also taken place abroad, um, and that is, is a, a programme administered by the FCO. Um, and again, that's been quite successful in drawing um, a whole range of people in. Uh, there's another programme at the moment, um, again, which is, is in some quarters it's quite controversial. It's called I Am The West. Um, and that's, again, with Muslim uh, role models going out and showing that you know, people are not hated uh, in the West, that the West is not at war with Islam, that if, if you want to, you can get on, you can have a, you know, a good life in the West as a Muslim. Uh, and again, that's been tremendously well received uh, in countries abroad. Um, we've just got to use whatever techniques, whatever media, whatever communication we can do to try and reach a whole range of different audiences. Not everybody on this agenda um, is intellectual, well-informed, um, you know, has the information, has the ability to debate. You've got to do it at a whole range of different levels if you're going to reach people. And Radical Middle Way has simply been one of those. Uh, and quite successful in doing that. Um, Eileen, um, when I talked before about a, a kind of spectrum um, of people um, in terms of radicalisation and then a spectrum of engagement, that's exactly um, as it is. And you've got people right at this far end who've actually taken the journey down and are maybe at the point either of going over or having gone over, how do we bring them back? Um, you'll know that there's a range of programmes um, in other countries, notably Saudi Arabia, uh, that have done a lot of work around um, 
de-radicalisation uh, with particular methods. Uh, again, you know, maybe there's things that we can learn. Um, it, it is fortunately, you know, fairly small numbers of people who are at this very far end, um, and obviously if they if they tip over um, and are then caught, prosecuted, convicted, um, and imprisoned. Uh, then there's work that you can do in prisons, uh, and that, that's, again, part of our um, program. Uh, in fact, there's a lot of work in prisons with um, prison imams um, to try and make sure that people are not drawn further into radicalisation. Prison is a closed environment by its very nature, and therefore the influences really can be quite dramatic there. Um, so we're working on all of these issues. That is a particularly complex uh, and difficult area, um, but if we can do it, then obviously we should. Right, three more questions. Uh, there are two gentlemen at the back who have been waiting patiently. Keep your hands up so that she knows who you are. There you go. They're sitting next to each other. I thank the Minister for that insightful talk. And I want to make the point to the Minister that Muslims themselves, not just the government, want to prevent violent extremism. Can you give us your name? And uh, Oktai Husseini. I'm a student here at the LSE. Thank you. Um, Aren't you just using this initiative for propping up puppet foundations such as the Quilliam Foundation, which doesn't really resonate Muslim opinion? And won't this alienate more Muslims which see this as the government trying to impose a labor version of Islam? And also you stated that you don't engage with those who tell lies about strategy. So you shouldn't engage with yourselves as the government who clearly state the ludicrous lie that labor foreign policy is protecting Muslims abroad and even lied for the basis of the war in Iraq. Thank you. Thank you. And this gentleman right next to him, or were you raising your hand on his behalf? Uh, it's a group effort, it worked, okay. Up in the front, there's a woman with the uh, red scarf. And there's a very disappointed woman behind her who wasn't called, we'll get her next. Uh, Linda Korsha, I'm in uh, geography department here. Um, I'm, I've also taught people from, of all ages from two years to 40 in all levels of education and I'm also a mother and a grandmother and as such I've had to think quite a lot about motivation in my life and um, in terms of policy evaluation I do question um, how you consider motivation when you um, are putting substantial amounts of money, millions of, of public money, I'd call it, whatever you call it government money, I call it public money, um, into um, networking, uh, money for networking, um, as a response to a generalised uh, threat of violence and how that spells out to you in terms of motivation. Because um, it seems to me that the, uh, the motivational factor is keep threatening violence for the money. Um, and what does that mean for young people who are not rewarded um, with money for networking? Um, because they don't threaten violence. Um, in Tower Hamlets, and the government's never admitted it, but the, the Tower Hamlets is the, the biggest ethno-religious concentration in the country. And... Um, I don't know whether you're aware of it, but there was a very general celebratory atmosphere in Tower Hamlets on 7-7. Um, it's, um, it's quite a joke, the money, money for terrorist networking. 
I'd also like to ask why you um, fund madrasas when they have the lowest educational achievement. Right. And also, I if you um, are really challenging anti-women views, why the government has designated um, the skill shortage of ethnic chefs when women in this country could be doing those jobs and could you, it could have really caused a change in women being employed but the, um, the, um, the migration channel for ethnic chefs has, has been kept open so there is no possibility of women being employed and I just wonder how much the courting of Islamic finance as well as um, the ethnic vote actually underlies government policy right. in this area. Thank you very much for your question and if you can spare one more? Yeah. Minister? Yes, one more. Um, thank you very much. Um, my name is Daisy Rose Seb and I'm a student at Camden School for Girls. Um, I have just a few points and they've kind of been alluded to but I wanted to ask you uh, explicitly just, uh, yeah, finally. Um, this, if our aim is to prevent violent extremism and we've concluded that, th that it is promoted in local communities, um, I mean, surely what we should actually be tackling is not to have more debate. What, I mean, because how much more are we able to learn? Surely we should be actually tackling the key issues of effective segregation in many northern communities, um, the disaffected youth, people who feel that, that joining these, uh, becoming radicalized, is kind of a rebellion to um, the kind of social exclusion that they face. Surely that these are actually the important factors. Often, often they themselves are ignorant. Often it is just a rebellion. And so surely debate won't actually uh, tackle that root cause. And I have uh, just another point. You said that uh, our debates in this country are being swamped by overcaution, but yet you also said that it's the state's role to protect people. Um, and if we are willing to talk to these radical groups, um, a very controversial measure, I would say, or controversial in Myers anyway, why aren't we prepared to debate with radicals on the other side of the agenda? People, it's been brought up before, and I'm sure you're sick and tired of hearing it, but people like Gert Wilders, why aren't we prepared to have discussion with them? Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Um, I was really um, glad to hear the, the, the comments from the back because I thought this audience was far too well behaved for uh, a student audience and uh, I, I, I'm very pleased you finally managed to break through uh, after a while. Um, the, the Quilliam Foundation, together with a whole range of other organisations, it's not about funding uh, government stooges or puppets um, for one minute. I mean, all the people I deal with uh, on this agenda are some of the most um, challenging people I will ever have to deal with. Uh, they're more direct with me than in most of my other policy areas, to be honest, um, because it's all uh, contested territory. Um, so I don't find that there are government stooges, um, you know, coming at me from all corners of the earth wanting to be part of this agenda. If anything, it's the opposite, to be honest. Um, now, I know people have particular issues about um, the Quilliam Foundation. Uh, they're outspoken. They're outspoken on one side of the line in the way that many other organisations are outspoken on the other side of the line. Um, but I don't think that they're puppets or uh, stooges. Um, when I was talking about UK foreign policy, um, I was simply trying to redress the balance just a little bit because UK foreign policy in a lot of the meetings I do on this agenda is basically, you know, uh, the spawn of the devil, the worst thing that could ever happen, the cause of every bit of radicalisation in the whole world and we're all wicked, wicked, demonic people uh, for having adopted um, particular lines on foreign policy. Now, I, again, I don't say we get it all right, 
Um, I don't either say that it's absolutely nothing to do with this agenda because clearly foreign policy is used by extremists um, in order to reinforce, inflame, um, ignite um, and fan uh, people's sense of victimhood and grievance and anger. Um, and sometimes that anger is based in real things like people, um, people's reaction to Gaza. Um, but then it's twisted through that and hopefully the extremists want to take it to a place where people then will get engaged in violence. Um, so, you know, I'm entirely conscious of all of that, but the story that never gets told uh, is of the things that we have done in, in a, a hugely significant way to help people in Muslim countries. And if we never acknowledge that, what we do is we feed the Al-Qaeda narrative that says the West is at war with Islam, uh, that the, the attack is on the whole of um, the Islamic world, uh, and that is a very dangerous place to be. Um, so I just ask people to weigh the balance just a little bit more evenly. And if you look at the United Kingdom, um, it is the, the place where the biggest amount of aid uh, has gone to places like Pakistan during the earthquake, uh, where the aid has gone in um, to, to Gaza to, you know, two, 250 million pounds, I think, to the Palestinian um, territories to try and do reconstruction work. So it's only just to say, um, just let's have a little bit of balance on that. Um, so, uh, Linda. Um, I, I think you, you know, you've, you've asked some really um, pertinent questions, some hard questions. Um, is it the case that if you threaten violence, you get rewarded? Is this a reward for bad behaviour? Um, that's certainly not my policy intention. Um, I've never done that in any of the areas that I've dealt with, whether it was policing, antisocial behaviour, um, all of those issues. Um, I don't believe that you know, people who go outside should get rewarded. What I'm trying to do is to strengthen the decent people on this agenda so that they're able to say to the people who are threatening violence, um, our community wants no part of you, and to isolate them and to put them to the edge so that they're not at the centre of the community. Um, and if you met the young people in particular that are part of the networking that's going on, you would see some of the most inspirational young people that you could hope to meet who are pretty brave in their communities, who are prepared to stand up and say some of these things. And it's a very difficult thing for people to do. So this isn't about facilitating terrorist networking. Um, it is the opposite of that. And, and again, I don't say it's easy to get right, but the intention is not to spend the public's money on um, nurturing something which is actually going to be dangerous to the public. And I agree with you, it's not government money, it's taxpayers' money, and that's why I'm so conscious of trying to do something with it uh, that makes a difference. Um, the madrasas. We don't fund the madrasas that are out there. I have my concerns about um, some of what goes on there. That's why we've launched the citizenship programme, which we launched in Bradford, which is now going out across the country to make sure that in madrasas we're doing citizenship education that isn't bland citizenship education that actually deals with the issue of violent extremism for youngsters as, as young as seven, eight, nine years old in a way that's perfectly appropriate. Um, we've developed teaching materials that when we had a conference the, the, the teaching materials that were available were snapped up within about an hour um, with teachers absolutely avid um, for examples, materials, lesson plans that they could do to engage with some very young people on the issues of violent extremism. They've never had those materials before and therefore never been able to have that debate. We've got a choice in this country. We either say this is a bad thing, we want nothing to do with it, and we don't try and influence it and change it, or we say as a country we've got a responsibility to do whatever we can to rescue that next generation of young people from being drawn down this path. Uh, and, and that's 
that's what motivates me to do this. Uh, the curry chefs, um, <laughs> we could have a debate about that, and I actually hadn't thought about the curry chefs in the um, context in which you put it. Um, the, the debate that raged around the curry chefs was whether or not you had to have people that came from um, another country, or couldn't you employ some of the people who are unemployed here in order to do the curry chefs' work. Um, the decision's been made by the Migration Advisory Committee to um, put that into that schedule. Well... <laughs> Right, but, but the, the advice was that, you, that this could be a shortage occupation and, and therefore it ought to be allowed to, to be filled. But I genuinely, I haven't thought about the issue um, of women and I think that's a very interesting point uh, that you've made. And I mean, I'm not responsible for making that decision, but I will raise that uh, with my colleagues uh, in terms of the point that you've made. Um, and you, know, you mentioned Islamic finance. I mean, this is not about finance. This is about trying to do something for the country. Um, Daisy, uh, you, you raised some issues here. Um, that were really about people's um, sense of belonging and you know, could we learn from other areas. I think one of the areas that, that we are quite interested to learn from um, is, is all of the debate around gangs at the moment. Um, a lot of the similar routes through that people find to radicalisation are often the same routes uh, that engage people in a gang culture, um, whether that's a criminal gang or you know, an ideological um, gang and that is about status, it's about sense of belonging, it's about family breakdown, it's about a, a sense of hope for your own future um, and again that is a relatively recent phenomena in this country that we still have a lot to learn about but I think there's a lot of crossovers uh, that can help us on this agenda um, and you've asked about um, Geert Wilders again, you know the decision was taken on the grounds that him being here would not be conducive to good community relations in this country uh, because the film that he wanted to show uh, were, was seeking to um, incite hatred uh, against people and um, the evidence was there uh, that had he come then the impact on our community would not have been beneficial but would have been damaging. All right, thank you very much. It is just about 8 o'clock and I know there are many questions remaining. I'm sure there will be many questions uh, after this uh, speech today and uh, we appreciate uh, you starting that uh, debate with us here today at uh, the LSE. Thank you very much for coming. Please uh, join me in thanking Hazel Bleers for joining us tonight as well. <laughs>